So the Great Commission is where we are. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I'm very excited. We're gonna, we, today we conclude Matthew. Uh, next, we're gonna go into Hebrews. Uh, it's a great book. Um, Hebrews is one of those books. It's, it's, uh, the third longest in the New Testament and probably the least preached on because of, uh, the depth of it. And so I, I like going deep and I like challenging myself. And so we're going into Hebrews. Um, it fits with Matthew. We've seen the, the veil torn in two with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And and the writer of Hebrews reads, writes and explains uh, that, that Jesus is greater than anything and, and, uh, and what he has allowed us to have in him. And so it, it ties in well uh, with the conclusion of Matthew. And so we'll be in Hebrews basically till the end of the year this year. Um, so with that, let's pray. And then we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we um, wrap up Matthew, I ask that you would help us. Lord, I thank you that you used um, this tax collector, this hated man, this, this guy who was looked upon poorly upon his, by his community, by his family, and that you transformed him, you redeemed him, and then you used him. Lord, I thank you for this account um, that you have given him, that you have, by your Spirit, enabled him to write. I thank you, Lord, for uh, his gifting in writing, his detail of showing that this Jesus fulfilled many prophecies from the Old Testament, and that there really is no other Messiah or no other person that could fit um, the bill for um, who he is as Messiah. And so, Lord, as we look at these last few verses, we ask that you would um, help us to get a vision of your commission and that you would help us to see our role uh, in this great work that you are doing around the world. Father, I pray that you would give us your eyes and give us your heart for the world in which we live. We love you, Lord. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us now by your spirit uh, to to understand this passage uh, with clarity and with uh, practical application. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so these last few verses um, are are very interesting. They, um, as you compare and contrast other gospel accounts, Matthew sort of 
deals with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And, and then he sort of fast-forwards through a whole bunch of information. And then he gives these few verses. It's been suggested, and I, I believe it, that these verses are, are the thrust, the most important point, or where everything in Matthew is leading to. Um, John MacArthur goes further, he, which I'm okay with. I'm reading it, obviously. He says, if a Christian understands the rest of the Gospel of Matthew but fails to understand this closing passage, he has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is a climax and major focal point, not only of this Gospel but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all Scripture Old Testament as well as new. I, um, I, I'm in this season of, uh, you know, every year around this time I get a little, I don't know if nostalgic is the right term. Uh, I tend to examine myself, my calling, uh, the, the, the work here at the church around this time because we're, we're approaching, it was around this season 10 years ago where God was like churning in my heart that I was supposed to do something. And it was between Easter and May 20th, on May 20th of 2007, I was called formally to, to restart this church. And, and, um, and when I came up here, there's a lot of churches that sort of end up following like a business model and, and, and pull from the wisdom of businesses. And I'm not here to sort of, neither here nor there, I'm sharing what I struggled with, um, but but I remember early on, like in the church planning circles, there's like, oh, you need to come up with a mission statement. You need a, like a purpose statement, mission statement, strategy, and you sort of outline all the stuff. And 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 as far as administratively wired as I am, I just never it never sat right with me. And the reason it never sat right with me is it's like, well, it's not my organization to create. Like I, that this is the mission statement of the church and has been the Great Commission. It's not it's not. It's not for us to come up with some fancy way to do things. It's our responsibility to be under the scriptures that this is Jesus' church. This is his organization. And he dictated to us how we're to operate. And so, so, so really, this, these verses are huge. These are sort of the, the governing verses. The, the, they govern how we live and operate and function as a church and and maybe not in perfection, of course, we're human. And there's, you know, as long as there's humans involved in church, there's going to be problems. And But our ideal is that we honor the word of God and that we try to fulfill as best as we can in our, in our, in our humanity what Christ has left us with. And so while I could spend a lot of time on the Great Commission, I don't have a whole lot of time to do this. I got through it in the first service. And so... My hope is to sort of not quite hopscotch through this passage, but to to go through and to sort of stop on some key points so that we understand what happened, what was explained. And so in verse 16 we read, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now this word but, it could be translated, depending on which translation you're using. It could be but, then, or now. Um, It... it's it's a word that shows sort of that there's a there's a contrast as Matthew is writing he gets to verse 6 16 and he says 
but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. So, so this seems to be in contrast with whatever he had just written. And so if we were to go back to the previous verse or previous section, we remember that there was a resurrection. And then as we sort of dealt with the resurrection story, there was a few verses that sort of dealt with the guards and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees kind of dealing with what are they going to do now that there's this missing body? And so these soldiers are brought in by the Pharisees and they say, we're going to pay you to kind of change your story. Um, We want you to come up with a story that the disciples came and they stole the body. And if you have any problems with Pilate, um, don't worry, we're in good with Pilate and we'll make sure you don't get into trouble. And so Matthew says from that day, this, this, this rumor that the disciples stole the body spread like wildfire. I mean, it, it, it makes sense because when was the last time you saw a dead person rise? I already explained last week that if a dead person or if a person dies and then they're revived, they weren't really dead. We just misassessed the situation in my humble opinion. But Jesus was dead, like dead, dead, dead as a doornail, dead. Uh, buried, sealed in a tomb, not buried, but sealed in a tomb. The angel appears. The soldiers know it. They're in total fear over what they saw, but now they're in problem with the leadership of the nation and with Pilate. And so this this tension surfaces. Matthew goes straight from that to this. But we know from the other accounts that Jesus appeared to the disciples a a number of times. um, But he leaves that out. And he seems to sort of indicate that in the midst of sort of the crisis of, of, of what was happening in Jerusalem, that the disciples were obedient to the commission found in verse 10. If you were to go back to verse 10, you would read that Jesus said to them, now the them is the ladies who went to the tomb. They see that it was empty. They see the angel. The angel says, go up, go find the disciples. Let them know that he is risen. As they go, Jesus then appears to them. And in verse 10, Jesus says to these ladies, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So the ladies go to the disciples. They tell the disciples, Jesus said he rose, and they would see him, but Matthew doesn't talk about that. Go to the mountain in Galilee. We have no idea where this mountain is. There's all sort of speculation. There's not too many mountains in Galilee, but there are a few. It serves no purpose to sort of debate over which mountain. We don't know. They clearly knew what mountain they were to go to. And so we're told they, in spite of their circumstances, despite of what they were sort of imagining, they were going to follow the word that they got from Christ to go to this mountain. And I think that that's the tension, or the maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. Even though all this craziness, they don't quite know what's going on, they were still going to follow the light that they had, the information that Jesus gave to them, even though they saw him dead, and now that they've seen him raised, they don't have a clue what's going on. They're told to go to this mountain, and so they go. Then we come to verse 17, and we're told that when they saw him at this mountain, they worshipped him. Very logical response to a risen Lord. You see Jesus, you see the divine, you fall on your face and you worship. Um, This is what we were created to do. Um, I I really liked what John Piper says. He says, uh, missions exist because worship does not. 
Although I would probably take exception to that and say there's all kind of worship in the world. People worship all sorts of things. And so really what he's saying is that worship of Christ doesn't exist, and so therefore we go. Here they see Christ, they worship him, and we see this second phrase, but some were doubtful. And it's like, how can this be? They've seen the risen Lord. They've, they've touched the risen Lord. We already know about poor doubting Thomas that gets sort of made, you know, what would you guys have done? Maybe I'm alone. I would totally doubt. I would struggle with this. You tell me that Jesus rose from the dead after seeing him killed. I would have some struggles. I have had some struggles because <laughs> I, you know, I go by faith and evidence. And, and so there are some who doubt, they were doubtful. And, and what does this doubtful mean? This word is used, if you remember the story earlier in the Gospels, when Jesus walked on water. What happened next? Peter got on the water and he began to walk. But then what happened? He doubted. Same exact word. Um, so I think it's the idea that they knew this was the risen Lord. They, could, they saw, they touched, they encountered him, but their mind was having a hard time sort of wrapping itself around what was, what was going on in their midst, in their generation, and how did they have front row to this? It's not hard for me to understand. For I mean, literally, if I leave a hotel room, what's the last thing you do before leaving the hotel room? And in my family, we kick everybody out of the hotel room. And then dad remains in the hotel room. And then dad gets on the floor. He looks under the bed. He goes over, flips all the sheets up. You go through everything to make sure nothing was left. Then you shut the door. You go down to the front desk. You turn in your key. You get in the car and you drive away. And you're like, did I get that sippy cup? (laughs) I don't know. And I'll have to pull over the car open up the thing up top and go, oh, there's a sippy cup. And maybe it's leaving your house. That's the oven going on. And and we doubt things that we triple check that we covered and we walk away and we're like, did I do it? So I have, I have no problem here looking at this. Like they're worshiping Jesus and like what in the world is happening? I can't tell you how many times I, I've been convinced that God has called me to do something, and then I begin walking by faith. And even though I truly sense that God has called me to do this, whatever it is, I then at night when I'm laying down, I'm tossing and turning, doubting, is God really calling me here? I'll never forget January 6th of, I think it was January 6th of 2008. I'd been at the church for about two weeks. Four people showed up at church. And I was signing loan documents for a house, thinking, what? What am I doing? But in those moments of doubt and resting and not being sure, if you can't quit, if you can't walk away, I think that those are those moments where God affirms that he is calling you to do whatever it is that you're doing. And so here they are, they're before him, they're, they're questioning what's going on. And now Jesus comes to them, and he says in verse 18, he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Key word, authority. And so what does it say about authority? Very simply, all. If you don't understand all, he goes in to explain from heaven and earth. So basically, anything that your mind can possibly imagine, all of the authority that is involved with creation, the person who has all of this authority is Jesus. And if you were to sort of 
do a word study through Matthew, you would see that authority is actually a a huge uh, theological, practical concept that Matthew is stringing along through Matthew. It appears ten times. And I know you're all dying to know where are the ten times that it appears. Um, so very first, Matthew opens up. There's sort of the... the, the uh, not what's the not pedigrees? I'm thinking in dogs' terms, um, human, genetics, uh, ancestry, ge- yeah, ge- genealogy. I deal with Labradors, so I'm thinking our pedigree. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have papers for myself, so I'm kind of a, a Heinz 57. I, I don't know where I came from, <laughs> so I rely on Facebook tests to tell me where I'm from based on my. No, just a joke. So, so it starts the first couple chapters all show that Jesus has the genetics, the, the genealogy, um, to fit the prophecy concerning the, the Messiah. Um, it's sort of an introduction. And then we come to the great, or, or the, the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And, and Jesus, like no other person, he teaches in a way that the people have never, ever been taught at the very end of Matthew 7.29, the, the people are said to be like, who, who is this guy? He, he teaches with authority that none of the scribes, none of the Pharisees, none of them have. There is something different about this man. And so Matthew points out that in Jesus' teaching, he was authoritative over all people and all thoughts and all schools of thought. Uh, from there... Going to Matthew chapter 8, this is one of those verses. Um, it's sort of an indirect usage of authority to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is making his way into Galilee. He's encountered by this centurion. As he meets the centurion or he sees the centurion or the centurion gets word that Jesus is coming to town, he has a sick servant. And so he goes to Jesus and he describes the situation and Jesus is like, take me to your house. And the, the, the centurion says, no, 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 no. I'm a soldier. And we know that he was a Gentile soldier, like he was not a Jew. And he's like, I'm a man under authority and I'm a man of authority and I know that I can say, you, you two go there and they do it. They listen to me. And He basically implies that Jesus is is not just a man, but one that has authority over all. He says, you don't need to go to my house. You just need to say, be healed. So don't trouble yourself, Jesus. Just please, could you heal the guy? And Jesus says, says, in all of Israel, I haven't seen faith like this. That this Gentile soldier impressed Jesus, Jesus with his understanding of Jesus' authority that Jesus could just speak it and the child would be healed. And Jesus goes and the child's healed. It's a beautiful story. You fast forward a little bit to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. This is the sending of uh, the disciples. Jesus delegates his authority. We're told that he he gives them authority uh, to heal, to, to do various things. Matthew doesn't expound on their little mission strip. Um, but they went out under Jesus' authority. Then you come to the chapters, chapter 21, 23 through 27. Really, this is the Passion Week. This is, um, this is the week where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And there are a number of, of sermons. There were two sermons. And, 
And Jesus stood in the temple teaching the people, but he was confronted by the leaders, and they were challenging his authority. In in Matthew 21, four times the word authority is used. Um, so 40% of the words, uh, the word, the 40% of the time that authority is used in Matthew, it's challenging Jesus' authority. You'll remember the story if you're here. They come up to him and they say, by, by, they don't question what he's doing, but they're saying, by whose authority is this? And Jesus said, hey, you want to know my authority, where it comes from? Answer me this question. And he asked him a question, sort of like, ugh, got them in a pickle. So they said, well, we're not going to answer that question. And Jesus says, you don't want to answer my question? I'm not going to answer your question. And this sort of goes back and forth where they keep digging themselves in a hole. And Jesus, in dealing with them, shows his great authority. And, and now the last time, here we are, the Sermon on the, or not the Sermon on the Great Commission. At the very conclusion of Matthew Jesus says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our following. And this morning as I was thinking about this, the the question that came to mind is, how how do we even as Christians challenge Jesus' authority? It's... It's not hard for me to come up with examples, especially like as we've just talked about our, like the missionaries that we're supported with and the things that were done. I know that I've challenged um, going to Mexico. Now, I'm not saying everybody's called to Mexico. I'm not saying that everybody's called to go overseas. I'm not doing this to throw stones at you all. I'm doing this to expose what I've wrestled with with God. I'm a former Navy SEAL. I have security clearances. I, there's a lot of reasons why I don't want to go because I'm a target. And I've made a whole lot of excuses for why I shouldn't go to places. But the reality is it has nothing to do with those things. It has everything to do with I was afraid. And I felt like Jesus saying, hey, go to Africa. And it's like, I don't want to go to Africa. So my being convicted to go do something and say, no. I want you to apologize to your wife for being a jerk. No. <laughs> There's like, we could go on and on and on, but I told you I had to stay short today. But, but, but when we know what God has asked us to do and we willfully say no, that's challenging his authority. And these guys went from total hobos through the Gospels to after seeing the risen Christ to, to living radically for him. They understood his authority even as it related to their deaths. They gave up all to follow him because they knew that everything was in his hands. And I can't explain to you how much freedom there is when you get to the place when you stop letting your fears control your behaviors and you surrender yourself to his authority and you trust him. He'll take care of you. Even if you die, he'll take care of you if you're in Christ. And so from there, in verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So the first part there, um, teaching them all that I commanded you. That, that whole section in the English, there's a whole bunch of verbs. As I look through the, the passage, I see go, I see make disciples, I see baptizing, I see teaching and observing. So these are all sort of verbs, uh, action words. And so when we look at the Great Commission, we can think, oh, there's all of these things that we're supposed to do. But in the Greek, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time, this is one of those that theologians can like discuss in the finer points of it and get into like big arguments. But in the Greek, there's one verb, and then there's a whole bunch of participles connected to the verb. So, so the, the verb, and as far as I'm going to go, I'm not going to teach English grammar. I'm not qualified to do that. Next time Michael Nichols comes, we'll have him do that. Um, the thrust here, the command, the verb is to make disciples. That these 11 guys were commissioned by Jesus to go make disciples. And all of the other verbs that we see in the English are participles that connect themselves or attach themselves to that verb of making disciples. So there's the, there's, there's the, the going, there's the baptizing, there's the teaching. These things are all connected or are part of the disciple-making process. Um, we would see this unfold. Acts 1.8 sort of overlaps the story. And in Acts 1.8 it says, um, but it, where Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive um, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, their immediate town, like the first, the, the heart of the world, really. And then as the gospel spills out from Jerusalem, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, so the outer ring of Jerusalem. And then he says, to the outermost part of the world. And, and so for us, this all peoples, it says all nations, this is all people groups, all language groups, this is Jesus is the Lord of the world. This isn't just he's the Lord of America. He's, he's the Lord of all, all nations, and these 11 guys have been commissioned to reach to the outermost part of the earth. And for us, it begins in our, like, I think it begins in your, your home. It goes to, to wherever you live, whether you're, you know, Palma Valley, up on the hill, Palomar, whether you're in Valley Center, uh, sort of concentric circles out. So there's, like, Valley Center, Palma Valley area would be our Jerusalem, then Escondido to like San Diego County would probably be our Judean Samaria, possibly Tijuana, maybe. Then to the outermost part of the world. And this is why we're partnered with, with missionaries, why we value these relationships. Um, so make disciples of all the nations. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To me, I want to make this really simple. Um, this first part, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I think that this speaks to evangelism, sharing the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures for our sins. That's the message that we're to go out. I don't see anything about walking the aisles in churches in the scriptures. I don't see about raising your hands. I think that those have become more for pastors to kind of build their confidence. Um, but baptism in the scriptures is this. It is the picture of one who has exchanged their life for Christ. 
that they've come to believe, and that baptism is this picture of, of your identifying with Jesus in his death, raising with his new life, that you've exchanged your life for his. It, it is the picture of one that's been converted. Um, and so if you're a person who has trusted in Christ, but you've not been baptized following belief, this is an example of sort of willfully ignoring the authority of Jesus because this is a clear example where Jesus has said, if you've trusted in me with your life, you're to be baptized. Thankfully, I don't have time to expand about my, my wrestling with that. But this summer, we'll have all kinds of opportunities to be baptized. I know we're going to do a beach event where we can be baptized, you can be baptized at the beach. Uh, we were going to have a, a, a thing in June, but our barbecuing guy, John Johnston, you know, we can't do an event without the barbecue. So, so we rescheduled everything to have a big party with John's barbecue. And John, you're welcome. You know? <laughs> so like in August, we're going to do a, a barbecue baptism here, and we're going to go Valley Center with our baptism. I did some research. You could baptize people in horse troughs. So I have a bunch of volunteers to bring in horse troughs, so we're going to have a baptism right on site. So if you haven't been baptized and you followed after Christ, like, like, don't be disobedient any longer. Okay, let's move along here. Teaching them to, to observe all I have commanded you. This is, this is discipleship. This is, well, it's all discipleship. Leading somebody to Christ is discipleship. But then equipping the saint for the, the ministry that they've been called to this is the second part, teaching them to observe all that I command you. This is important. This is why I stand under the scriptures. Like, I'm not some special guy. My opinion means nothing. My aim is to teach this as faithfully as I know how. This is why we go a book at a time through the Bible. We don't chase topics. We submit ourselves to his teaching. And I believe that the greatest way to grow, to be discipled, to be nurtured, is to sit under good Bible teaching because it's by the word of God through his spirit that he begins to challenge us. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens through the intake of the word. So this is why we value this so much. And so we're called to teach, and as we teach, or as I teach, and as or we teach through all the different Bible studies for whatever, the, the word of God takes root in our hearts, and then God begins to lead you to do things. And I can't imagine how overwhelmed these guys were. There are 11 of them. They're afraid for their life, and now Jesus tells them, go reach the whole world. You're now my ambassadors. I'm going to be leaving you, and it's up to you to reach the world for Christ. I don't know about them, but I can relate. Like, coming to Valley Center... Like, overwhelming. Hey, go restart the church. The Great Commission is your command. It's like, oh, how's that supposed to happen? I'm kind of a, <laughs> I'm not the greatest guy ever, <laughs> or very talented, or skilled, or how's this going to work out? And I think that Jesus then says to them, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the, end of the age. He comforts them. He says, listen, this is my church. This is my mission. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you along the way. As a side note, because I think it's important, there's a lot of Bible teachers, and it's happened here, you know, where people always reference when there's a prayer meeting, this this National Day of Prayer, I'm sure it will happen, and it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. We get two or three people together, and we say, oh, where two or three are gathered, then he'll hear us now. 
That whole passage in Matthew 18 deals with church discipline, and that's the most difficult thing to do is to discipline somebody in a church. And Jesus says if you're in the midst of disciplining somebody and you have two or three with you that are all on the same sheet of music, know that I am with you. Here, this is like, he says, I am with you to the end of the age. And not only am I with you to the end of the age, but we know that if you've come to Christ and you've trusted in him, you've been baptized by the Spirit. And then the, not only is he with you, but he's within you. You could be in the middle of Africa all by yourself, but you know as a Christian that God is with you. And there's great comfort in that. If you're in Christ, you are never without him. Where, he, where we are, he is. Uh, the psalmist writes, where could I go to the bottom of the ocean or the, the skies? He is with us. So this great commission, it's his mission. And I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, my reasons for coming to Christ were totally selfless, self, selfish, not selfless. Selfless, selfish, selfish, self-serving. My life was a total mess. In the course of a couple of years, alcohol had gotten a hold of me in the culture that I was in. I was making stupid decisions, resisting evading arrest was one of them or two of them, depending on how you want to link those together. My life was spiraling out of control. And my buddy began to nag me about Jesus. And so over the course of a couple years, where I got to the place where I surrendered my life and I decided to respond to the gospel, it was not because I had any intentions greater than myself. All I knew is that I was a great sinner in need of a great Savior, and I was in trouble, and I needed help. And so I gave my life to Christ. I had no idea that I was enlisting myself into the middle of a a, a war zone. We're told in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, uh, you know, act as a soldier is pleasing to the one who enlisted you. And so as you accept Christ as your Savior, and I, I hope I'm, this isn't bad news to anybody who's like, I did what? Like, what's up? Like, what we're a part of is so much bigger than ourselves. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You have been reconciled to God. But now you've been set on mission for him. There's a great spiritual battle happening around us. We're told by the scriptures that, that if you're in Christ, you've been given at least one spiritual gift for, this, for the purpose of serving, and you're to utilize your gift. You're to work it out. And this can be completely overwhelming to think that you're now a part of something that's bigger and that you have an obligation before God to, serve, to, to function and to, to serve in some way that he's called you for. And while the Great Commission is, is the commission to the church, my commission, I believe, is in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, that, that says that pastors and teachers, they were given for the equipping of the saints. And so that as we teach, as we go in, God hopefully will be moving in your hearts and stirring in your heart. And you'll sense things like, I feel like God wants me to do this. Now, if you come to me and you say, hey, Gunnar, like, it would be really great if we had this. Um, and like, they look at me like, it's up to me to do that. I'm going to immediately say, like, hey, I, I think that's a great idea. I think God's calling you to do that. 
When do you want to start? Today was a classic example. Glenn came up to me. He says, hey, what do you think about a prayer ministry? I'm like, well, we kind of have a prayer ministry. What do you think about like after the service if we had people up front? I'm like, that's great, brother. Do you volunteer to do that? He's like, yeah, 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 we can start today. So Glenn's going to be up here in front. If you need prayer, come up front. Glenn's going to be happy to pray with you. And if you want to pray for people, like we're all available to pray. But God wants you to be involved. And you might not be able to go overseas. I, I, I get it. But somewhere in here, this is really embarrassing when a bookmark is not doing its job. There it is. You know, a few months ago, Faye made these. It's like all of our missionaries at the time, we need to update it. But they're, they're on the lobby. Like maybe you can't go overseas. But can you put a bookmark in your Bible and pray for the missionaries? Can you write an encouraging letter? Could you send an email? Could you put WhatsApp on your phone and, and text one of our missionaries to encourage them? Can you bring in food to help an orphanage? Can you serve here in Valley Center? Can you... Like, there's all sorts of things that you can do. Like, from your home to the ends of the earth, we all have a responsibility in this. And my last point here is God help us. Because we can't do it on our own and we can't do it on our own strength. We're totally dependent upon him for all of this. So with that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We praise you. We um, Lord, we look to you. Father, there are people here in different places in their walk and their relationship with you. If there are people who have not um, come to the place where they have received Christ as their Savior, Lord, I ask that you would so move in their heart, so move in their mind, that they would be able to uh, piece together the uh, the void or the, the the details that they're looking for. We know that um, faith is always needed, but I think that there's faith that's unreasonable evidence. And so, Lord, I pray for those that haven't come to saving faith in you. Father, I pray for those of us who have trusted in you with our lives. Lord, I don't believe that your, your word is just some way for us to, to fill our time, to fill our minds but it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's designed to equip us, designed to move us along in our relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as a church, that you would move in each of our lives, help us to have clarity on, on what gifts you have given us. Help us to see how we can serve. How can we be a part of what you're doing here, here locally and to the ends of the earth? Father, we desire to honor you. We confess that it's so easy to get overwhelmed with our fears. But we know, Lord, that you're moving in our midst. And we ask that you would help us. Help us to be a church that honors you. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.